Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. Here today, we have Tommy Leap, founding partner of Jetstream. Welcome in, Tommy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about Jetstream. Sure. Jetstream is a pre-seed climate tech fund focused mostly on software startups with some occasional hardware and moonshot investments um, to help the transition to a net zero or sustainable economy. Fantastic. And... Really excited to really dive in to your investment thesis and how you even came about to start Jetstream. So first question would be, what is a founding partner? And if you could just tell us about the the conception and launch and where you are now with Jetstream. Cool. Yeah. So um, as founding partner of Jetstream, basically I'm the founder and the operator of Jetstream. Uh, it's just me kind of as the GP but of course, I have a big network of LPs, of co-investors, other people I like to collaborate with. A little bit about my backstory. I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in Mendel Park. I went to Stanford. Um, I started working in tech. And then I got, in a way, lucky to get a, uh, a break and learn about venture by being the first employee at Floodgate, an early stage fund based in Palo Alto, um, run by Mike Maples and Ann Mirko. But that was back in 2011. And it was an amazing on-ramp. The venture, Mike and Ann are just legendary investors, both on the Midas list, maybe multiple times each, um, and really fantastic. So for me, it was a discovery that um, I could meet lots of people and work with a lot of founders and helping them uh, build their, their businesses instead of just focus on one, on my own, or working at someone else's company. And I haven't really turned back since. There's been a bit of a wandering path over the last 12 years, um, but it's been a kind of a story and venture. I'd say kind of from there, I've worked at a handful of other funds. Maybe the um, interesting ones are Haystack, run by Samuel Shaw in San Francisco. Um, I spent some time working with AngelList in 2018, 2019, helping other entrepreneurs start uh, and run venture funds and do syndicate investing. I also at the time um, had my own syndicate that I started in 2017. And then my story with climate comes in basically late 2019. Uh, I left Angelus to join a startup. It didn't work out for me at this other startup. Within two weeks, the CEO said, hey, Tommy, great to have you here, but we're looking for something else in this role. So sorry, I have to let you go. So on the plus side, I found out early um, that it wasn't going to work <laughs> out. 
And then uh, the silver lining there was I kind of had one of these, you know, Monday morning, fall 2019, now what do I do with my life moment. So I, I reached out to a close friend, a mentor of mine, who suggested I, I check out climate change. He recommended this book called The Uninhabitable Earth um, that I devoured in like two days. It's a story of kind of all the terrifying things that are happening to the planet due to a lot of feedback loops and other issues based on what's going on. And uh, yeah, it really lit a spark for me. Greta had been in the news at the time. Uh, the Green New Deal was kicking around in Congress and having grown up in California, there were wildfires kind of on and off and they're getting increasingly worse. And it all just kind of clicked. I realized that climate change was an important part of my own identity. And I decided to then just entirely shift all of my investing to focus on climate. At the time, there weren't a whole lot of people talking about climate change. From where I was sitting at AngelList, um, I realized that basically like no VCs or no startups use that phrase or we're talking about climate on the platform. So I had to dig to find people that were even in this community. Uh, Jason Jacobs had started a podcast called My Climate Journey, which was spectacular. And we met up. He happened to be in the Bay Area. I think that was maybe November 2019. Uh, Chris Saka had started Lower Carbon and was doing, you know, kind of building a brand with that big fund now. And Y Combinator had put out a request for startups focused on carbon, which was also kind of ahead of its time very early in that regard. So there's a small community um, coming together. Some startups have built companies in this space. And I just tried to insert myself in the ecosystem, figure out what my role was going to be, um, how I could move things forward. Um, and particularly given my background, you know, how could I invest and help these startups succeed? So I started that investing in fall 2019. I was fortunate to meet up with a fund called Congruent Ventures. That is a climate-focused fund, really great folks there. Um, and they uh, basically took me on. I did some work with them. They taught me a lot. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. Everyone kind of dispersed, went remote. And I continued to consult for them for a couple of years. And then come fall of 2021, basically, I got into a position where I was able to uh, start gesturing the fund. It is quite a journey. And I'd love to zoom in a little bit on a couple of those uh, transition points. Um, so going to congruent, can you talk about the difference then or that mind shift that you had going from traditional VC into the climate space? Sure. So the main thing for me is, well, one, there's just a lot to learn. Two, climate, you know, it's kind of historically called clean tech. And it was around this time, fall 2019, where you know, I say we kind of the people involved then start to latch on to this phrase climate um, to kind of rebrand from clean tech to climate. Climate also just felt like it covered more industries. So maybe clean tech was principally focused on energy. Um, but with climate change as an issue, um, we started touching other industries like transportation. Well, transportation, sure, that's part of clean tech 1.0, um, but also maybe like the built environment um, or uh, agriculture, uh, even things like fashion and other areas that before we hadn't really thought of the climate impacts maybe about some of these industries. But now with a more holistic view of the world, we realize that all of these industries produce emissions that contribute to climate change. And how can we transition all of them towards, you know, a low emission or zero emission kind of uh, method? And so that, so I had a lot to learn because I hadn't spent any time in this. The congruent team is very knowledgeable. Um, I got to piggyback along with a lot of their investments, uh, meet a bunch of their founders. I was specifically helping their startups with fundraising. So I would 
dive pretty deeply into a lot of different industries. I learned a ton from the founders, help them articulate it for people like me who would then want to invest in these companies. It was a, a fantastic way to kind of learn by doing with them and gave me the bug to figure out how might I then, you know, kind of support founders in my own way. In terms of that learning curve, it seems like there is some aspect of subject matter expertise, but then the other things from venture in terms of the the quality or the quality of the founders, the go to market strategy, just everything else about the company, I'm assuming is similar, if not exactly the same as traditional venture. Yeah, I think it really depends. And so, you know, kind of okay. one of the things, yeah, coming in for, you know, my background being in generalist software, coming into climate, there's a lot of deep tech, kind of hard tech, kind of hardcore stuff going on in climate that benefits from a biology background, chemistry background, physics, et cetera, kind of deep science. I do not have that background. So part of my uh, stepping into this industry and kind of this investment theme, you know, I have to figure out for myself, what's my, you know, what am I uniquely bringing to the table here? And a big part of that for me is, well, it's not the science part. It's more on the software part. Um, it's more on helping founders and helping founders articulate what they're trying to build um, to investors. So I've uh, sidestepped some areas that might be popular among other climate VCs like carbon sequestration or direct air capture, kind of that whole category. Yeah, much more focused on software. So when I talk about Jetstream, I say pre-seed climate tech, mostly software. Um, and uh, my bias is in that software area. However, there are a lot of kind of parts of the economy that would benefit from, you know, software accelerating progress. In the software realm, I see basically three main technology shifts that kind of enable and underpin a lot of the companies I invest behind. So one of those is um, proliferation of sensors or kind of the decline in cost among sensors. And those can be sensors at many levels from uh, being able to put in relatively inexpensive satellites into space to kind of um, mid-atmosphere sensors to pick up weather to on the ocean or in soil um, or even in buildings. You know, the cost of sensors has, has dropped significantly. So that provides us the ability to create many new use cases and collect a lot more data about the planet, about our environment, and about kind of how we live within it. So that's pretty exciting to me. The other, the next one is kind of a, software layer or AI layer to help us make sense of all that data, which is, you know, kind of AI has taken a lot, it taken off a lot in, in maybe the last year or so. Um, so that's pretty exciting. We're seeing a lot more kind of climate and AI companies um, making sense of a lot of data, helping us decide as humans, like, what should we do now with this information? And then the third is kind of a robotics or kind of real world shift where um, the cost of robotics has declined. Uh, significantly. And so we're able to move things around in the real world. Climate is kind of a real world physical problem. So we're able to do a lot more in the, in the real world, again, using data, using AI, and then kind of manipulating things with ro low cost robotics. So those are like the three levels that I like to invest them on um, and kind of big shifts that I think are powering kind of this, you know, the, the way I view climate tech as an area. That makes sense. And it's, it serves as a good framework for somebody who wants to come from the VC world and get started more in climate tech. And with that, I'd like to know more about your thoughts around AI and climate and what you're seeing as the opportunities there. Because I love the idea of something, of a topic that is so right now, AI. And even I'm not quite sure how that integrates in with climate. 
So just paint me a picture. What are some of the applications that you're seeing? Yeah, so I co-hosted an event uh, maybe a couple months ago that we called, I think, you know, Climate and AI, where we spotlighted a few companies working in this area. I think it's important to note that there are different flavors of AI. One of the recent ones that's becoming really popular with you know, OpenAI and kind of ChatGPT and what they're doing is using these LLMs where they kind of collect, they can kind of read all this content um, and basically use it to create a machine that will, in a sense, speak to us um, and interact with, with us like it's a human, having learned from what many humans have written. You know, there are some areas kind of in that category. That still feels very nascent to me. I've seen um, startups talk about, you know, if you have a grant writing kind of team or person, then, you know, they can kind of ingest all this data about writing grants and then output kind of a very easy or kind of a, a simple way to do that effectively. So kind of anywhere where there's a human that needs to produce some kind of content like that, I think the LLMs can be really helpful. The other side is just kind of using AI to take in big data and help us make sense of it. So a couple of companies I've worked with um, use that in different ways. So, you know, Pachama is one that uses satellite imagery to track what's going on in forests um, and do some estimation of carbon emissions. And I think that is, you know, we couldn't do that without AI because there's just so much data to try to understand. Glacier is a company that um, uses computer vision to determine what kind of recyclable commodities are coming down um, a line at a recycling facility. And then AI figures out how to sort those and quickly move those into the right bins so that more um, kind of plastic or other recyclable material can be claimed um, and then recycled as a commodity. There's some other really cool stuff. Uh, forgetting the name, I think it's called Colossal, the company that's trying to bring back the woolly mammoth and other species. You know, they're using AI and probably a handful of different areas to, you know, recreate and yeah, genetic code and then uh, nurture these creatures in wombs, uh, which is pretty wild. Uh, but those are, you know, those are kind of big audacious ideas, which is really exciting. And, you know, I kind of think of it as uh, linearly as humans, if we put a lot of our brains together, kind of what could we achieve? And then with AI, we can just do that so much more quickly that there are things, you know, that it, it's really like our imaginations in a sense of the limit, but it's yeah, pretty wild. So there are probably a lot of use cases. And I think another thing is like, as a VC, I'm, you know, I try to stay up to date on kind of various aspects of climate change, but I'm mostly interested in meeting founders who are experts in what they're doing, learning from them, and then trying to figure out if I think, one, it's a company that's interesting to me that I can help with, and two, if I think there's actually like a really big opportunity that technology can enable. So though I might have some ideas of AI, it's like I mostly prefer learning from the founders themselves as the experts. That makes sense. And in terms of different software solutions that you are excited about or have invested in. I think that's another great way for people in traditional VC who have that software background then to focus on software climate startups. Can you talk about what you're seeing in the market right now for those types of companies? Sure. I think, I think software is particularly interesting because there can be kind of traditional, you know, software platforms where, you know, for example, you run a commercial building, you need to get a sense of what all the sensors in the building are telling you, you know, from either temperature or presence of other people or um, how much, you know, lighting needs to be used or can it be switched off? Like kind of simple things like that. There's a company I work with called TribAR that has a platform that plugs in all that sensor data. And then, you know, you can basically ask it questions that can surface up information. So, and that's kind of like an energy saving platform in a way. 
So there are kind of some classic things like that the software can do. And then I think it gets pretty interesting where software can enable like new business models that we haven't had before. So an example kind of in that category is a company called Watt Carbon that um, basically tracks um, the intensity of uh, the carbon intensity of energy emission within a building. But because it's so good at tracking that, it can actually create a marketplace to sell kind of like energy credits, kind of a new kind of um, clean energy credit, and then use its technology on the back end to verify that carbons have been reduced after you know the building owner goes through some decarbonization project. There's a piece of technology. It's creating a new business model. There's a little bit of a marketplace attached. That's kind of where when you need things like that happen, that's pretty cool. David Energy does something where they're essentially kind of a software-powered energy provider. So they're going up against other folks that are, you know, like PG&E in California. They're going up against the equivalent in um, deregulated states where they'll be the energy provider, but then they can use software to optimize things and provide energy at a lower cost to consumers and, and you know, potentially even went down entire market. So I love these kind of software-enabled companies that are then reimagining how the incumbents do, you know, what they've been doing for a while. I guess it's just the role of technology and the conversion from more analog systems to digitizing things. And what do you do with all of that data? And it's been a long time coming in a lot of these traditional industries. You know, you talked, you mentioned deregulated energy markets, and that's something that, you know, someone from VC world might not be familiar with. So I can see that being you need to have that entry point in order to figure in, in order to understand that market opportunity in order to make that investment. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, you know, when I talk to people who are getting into climate, I always say energy is a beast. Energy itself is just a beast of an industry. It's really massive. There's so much to learn. Uh, I feel like I'm very much tip of the iceberg. You know, I'm learning a lot through the founders that I work with. There's a lot going on there. I, I, you know, the, the people I choose to invest in, you know, I feel like they have to have a really great grasp of what's going on. There are so many nuances. Uh, and that's just one, you know, that's just kind of one of the industries that, that kind of climate touches. Yeah, and that's, that was my entry point is that I had, um, I was at PG&E for a little bit. And so I had that, that credibility from that side. I did finance there, but it's just the, having just that experience being inside the building helps a lot. But then it was also essential to find the right type of people to hire with utility, with utility API to figure out all the other aspects of it. And so I think it's like you've said, you have figured out what your specific niche is in terms of the value you can add to founders and in terms of helping fundraising, those types of things. And I like that it, you're very clear what you do versus what the other types of people need to be doing in order to balance out your skill set. You need to have those scientists. You need to have those people that have been deep in the deep tech, right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's great. You know, I think there are kind of one of the nice things is there are, you know, increasingly more and more investors coming into climate, um, interested in climate as an investment opportunity. And I find it's given kind of where I am, like I kind of think of it as like a, like a double or triple niche. So it's like pre-seed, super duper early, climate tech. It's kind of its own, you know, its own theme. And then mostly software. And uh, that focus in a way enables me to collaborate with a lot of people who do things slightly differently. So for example, um, Ian Roundtree runs a fund called Cantos, 
love Ian and his fund. And so when, any, when anything kind of touches deep tech um, and climate, I like to talk to him about that. Um, Seth and Ella at 50 years, they do a lot of great work um, helping scientists start companies. They have great bio um, investments and, you know, generally they're doing a lot of great stuff in climate. So they're another fund that I like to be close with and work with. So it, it's nice that in the early stages and um, across climate, you don't have a ton of people bumping up against each other. It's, you know, when you get a little bit more into Series A, you get some of the big uh, funds coming in with uh, big dollars and, and putting, moving some muscle around. But um, at the early stage, it's kind of we all sort of have our thing. And um, I think it, great, it makes for a, you know efficient and, and healthy marketplace for founders. One more variable that I want to get your perspective on is that consumer versus B2B or enterprise solutions uh, that these climate tech companies are focused on. So are you agnostic in terms of the customer? I mean, I would say kind of classically, yes, but I find consumer opportunities um, maybe generally like harder or, um, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little bit more timid about diving into consumer investments. Um, I think that there's some, you know, really important areas. So, you know, one, one consumer company I'm involved with is called Wild Grid Home, and their mission is to basically educate people uh, who want to make a clean energy transition with their own homes. Uh, there's a lot to learn about from solar panels, batteries, heat pumps, kind of, um, you know, EVs, EV charging, um, and WildGrid is there to support individual consumers on that journey. I love that. You know, I, I feel like I've, when I've made major purchases, I've benefited from something like Consumer Reports or NerdWallet. Um, and there's nothing that I've found that is particularly, you know, focused on that climate. Angle. There are a lot of startups that will, you know, offer you a service of, you know, we can't help electrify you. And so that feels like it's pretty competitive. Um, but WildGrid is able to interact with the consumer kind of from the moment that they're trying to get, trying to learn about it. Um, I think that's nice. I think there's also kind of on the consumer side things around, you know, how do you change your lifestyle so that you can be, you know, more climate friendly. That's interesting. And I think there's some interesting things there too. But for the most part, it's kind of these B2B solutions. You know, the, the, um, a lot of the, man, there are just so many industries that are starting, you know, what feels like just massive transitions. So there's a ton of opportunity. You know, even there's, there's some kind of fun things like you see consumers, uh, there's a consumer pull to goods um, that are more sustainable or, you know, don't have plastic in them, maybe biodegradable, maybe reusable. Um, that's really cool. And I think that will continue. Um, and so, you know, there's like kind of a B2B response of how do we help big manufacturers of clothing products or soft goods Re rethink manufacturing in a way, because what might've been made with plastic before, you, you know, we have to invent new materials and probably create new manufacturing methods to be able to provide you know, sustainable goods um, and replace kind of the plastic based goods that many of them were building before. And then as a quick transition from consumer to building the machine that makes the better consumer products too. Right, exactly. So, you know, it's going to be messy. I think there's, in, in the sense that I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity um, kind of in that classic, classically disruptive way. Like there may be, you know, new manufacturing methods that, you know, they start by serving existing customers or like existing brands, but then eventually they vertically integrate, stay in-house and create their own either manufacturing processes or, or their own brands. Which, you know, kind of in these transitions, there there's big opportunity. Look at like, you know, lower carbon has invested in 
a ton of um, you know nuclear energy companies, and that might not happen this year, this decade, you know, to deliver. But at some point, we expect that nuclear energy will have major breakthroughs, and that will just have massive implications for society at large and how we get our energy. It's pretty exciting. It is, and I love how there's just so much can be in the bucket of climate tech as well. And I think that rebrand was very important because clean tech had gotten even a bad rep within the Valley. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would, I would say, um, yeah, there still are some Sand Hill, you know, firms that are not interested in climate tech that kind of think of it this phase as clean tech 1.0 um, revisited with business models that might not work. Um, so there definitely are skeptics out there. It's not kind of all rosy for, you know, the entire VC industry. Uh, but increasingly, a lot of the generalist funds um, are interested in especially software that are that um, is enabling kind of the clean energy transition. So that's like a really nice intersection for the, you know, generalist kind of classic Sand Hill Road VCs and a fun way. Yeah, kind of for me to work with them too, because having come from that generalist background, I've made a lot of relationships with those those funds, um, and it's nice to be able to help you know climate focused founders who may have worked with you know maybe with me or with other early stage climate VCs from the early days, then transition and get funding from some of the you know best VCs in the world, top twenty VCs that have you know great expertise, relationship, and capital that can help those startups scale uh, much bigger. So that's a role I like to play. Um, I also see folks kind of go the other way who start, you know, they get generalist investors, do a seed or, you know, pre-seed or seed round. And then as they grow, they want to lead more heavily into kind of resources from the maybe more climate focused funds or exclusively climate focused funds. So that's kind of like another pathway. It, and seeing these different, you know, kind of ways or, or paths for different types of companies is really nice. And, um, yeah, it's 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 from where I sit, it's fun to see. I have like enough of a climate background, enough of a generalist vacuum background that I can, you know, kind of match a little bit um, whichever way the founder wants to go. And that makes sense for even pulling together a round, balancing a generalist fund with a more technically aware fund as well. Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know. And it depends on dynamics of the round and how much a founder is going to raise um, and, and what their goals are. One of my favorite things when I meet a founder for the first time, we talk about, you know, like here to pitch and at the very end, talk about fundraising. And I like to ask, what are your goals for this round? Like, who do you want to be investors in this company? And sometimes they've thought about it and they really want kind of someone with a, um, a climate background or a climate kind of intention or worldview. And other times, um, you know, they might not care as much or they want, you know, just kind of top VCs on the on the list, and yeah, there are there are paths for all of those. I think you know, kind of going back to what I was saying about having a kind of deep tech or science background, some companies really need that, and so they've got to be really thoughtful about you know where they're going to get money from um, early on. And you know, I, I kind of think if something's easy enough for me to understand, and if I can help make it easy to understand, then they'll probably have you know many sources of capital from which they can choose. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the deeper tech ones that I think are um, probably have a little bit more of a challenge. But again, more and more funds are coming online there, especially from corporations, governments. Yeah, there's some really great programs popping up too. I liked what you said about what you ask founders when you're talking with them. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're looking for in terms of a founder and some of those key questions you ask? So yeah, maybe what I can do is just go through kind of the interaction I'll have with a founder, my thought process, the meeting, and then kind of how I think about it. So usually I'll hear about a startup through um, another founder in my portfolio or someone I've worked with before or someone I've met before or another VC I'm close with who might have kind of looked at the startup or kind of randomly through, you know, through some other means. And I'll check out the blurb, I'll ask for a deck, and then I'm thinking about kind of the sort of classic three main things, the founder, the market, the product. Is, is this founder kind of interesting in the sense that he or she has a background or expertise in something that I think would be a great um, fit for what they're doing? Is the market one that you know, kind of fits with my worldview of what I think is important and what I think is a big opportunity? And then you know, product-wise, do they have at least an initial angle that I think makes sense and, and shows some promise? And so um, you know, I'll set up a meeting with the founder, uh, and then in that kind of meeting, uh, first usually I just introduce myself, talk about my fun jet stream. I'll explain kind of you know my goals, what we're doing, um, the very high level. Um, you know, kind of another thing I should I could say here is that Jetstream invests 250k check, usually in single digit valuation. So I'd like to make that clear relatively early. I would also say kind of before meeting the founder, if there are any companies that I've invested in that are close to the industry that the founder is working in, I'll share those so that there are no surprises. And so it's up to the founder if he or she wants to meet with me or not. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, we're in the meeting and having looked at the deck before, we might go through um, the deck, you know, if, if it kind of makes sense with the story. Um, oftentimes, I'll just ask a handful of questions. I really like knowing the inception mythology of how the company started. And I say mythology because it's, you know, it kind of changes over time. Um, but it's really nice to know the background of how the founder got started. Um, I like to ask or just learn kind of, you know, about the founder's background, kind of personal background and interests. Uh, one of the things I, in a sense, look for is like, is there kind of a, just like a really nice personal connection with the founder? It's very hard to do in the first meeting. But um, as much as I can get pick up that signal, like the better, because we're going to be entering what could be a very long multi-year relationship. And so if we enjoy working together, especially kind of from those first, first few meetings, that's a really good sign. And then, yeah, going through the deck, there'll sometimes be things that aren't included, like I'll drill in on like, what's the business model? How exactly could this possibly you know, work in a big, big way? You know, Who are the early customers? What are the relationships with them? I might ask as a follow-up to the meeting, can you share more information with me about the customer? Do you have interview notes you've done with them? Could you share their contact info with me so that I can speak with them? And then from the technology perspective, it depends. You know, at pre-seed, it's often very, very early that there might not be there might be a demo, there might be a, a platform, but it might or might not be kind of a deeply technological thing. I'll usually just try to get an assessment or make an assessment myself of do I think you know, do I have reason, reasons to believe that the, this founder or this team is capable of building software or the platform they say they can? Um, is there other evidence from their background or um, kind of from references that can support that? When I engage with founders, this, this fundraising effort is basically like a thing that I tend to do with them because I'm, I'm often so early, sometimes the first person they've spoken to before kind of officially fundraising that... I like to share, you know, this is how I would recommend you to approach this given kind of your stage, how much you want to raise your goals. And I can help 
you know, with these kinds of intros to these people. Um, and, I'll, you know, sometimes you know, I'm thinking to last week when I met a founder and suggested basically five funds that you speak with and wrote up some context on them. She said, that sounds great. There are a few things in the deck that we um, talked about updating. You know, when I put my hat on of being at those other funds, there are things that I want to see, like let's dig in a little bit more to uh, revenue potential for kind of these different industries you're going into, these different types of customers, um, and maybe make sure to include like, it'd be nice to include a little bit more about the founders um, than is just kind of referenced in the deck. And so then I'm armed with, you know, kind of a deck that I think is compelling. Um, she's agreed to these intros. I can send them out to these handful of funds. And then I get feedback from them right away. There can be a nice thing where, um, because I have this ongoing relationship with these other funds, like the feedback is often one quick, two direct and clear. And then I can kind of translate that back to the founder. It's like, okay, these three were a fit. They want an intro. These other two are, are not for this reason. So, you know, just save for a bunch of time. And we're kind of marching together closer to, you know, finding a lead investor that I, I would, you know, kind of with the intention that I would participate alongside. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a Climate Avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in avenging the climate, especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time. Avenge on.